recording. <laughs> anyway, I was while I was sitting this evening, I was uh, thinking about a a passage I read from a book by Ajahn Chah, who is I would consider one of the uh, the main teachers of the Western Vipassana lineage. He was uh, Jack Cornfield's teacher and really the, um, a major strain of how practice is presented in the West by m- many of us, along with a, another uh, master named uh, Sayadaw um, Mahasi, Mahasi Sayadaw, a Burmese teacher. We are reverberating, unfortunately. And I was, I was thinking about him describing the people who came to his monastery in Thailand. And when people would come to the monastery, they would come into the main hall and see skeletons hanging. They were all, there were skeletons hanging there. And of course, they had nothing on them, so you couldn't tell whether they were a man or a woman. They were just skeletons. And it would freak people out. And, they would, and many people would leave. And he described how even even older people would uh, would run for the hills, would escape. And he and the way he started to think about it, he says, "This is there's something crazy about this." He says these people are all walking around with skeletons all day long, every day, but to see one freaks them out. And I think this speaks of our of a fundamental issue that all of us have, maybe even maybe it's built into our conditioning, some kind of denial of the fact that, that we are, as one person put it, we are sinking ships from the moment we're born. And that we are literally walking around right now with uh, vitalized, uh, vitalized skeletons that have that have the covering of, of um, flesh and muscles and skin and hair. And in there is all these organs that are, have blood pumping because we are vitalized right now. We have, we have life. We have the, we have the um, whatever that life force is, that urge, that passion to be, to be alive. That passion that runs through all of our lives, that drives us, that it's the same desire that drove the Buddha to awakening. It's the same desire that leads us to make a complete mess of our lives. But when all is said and done, it is, I think, and I think it's very central in the teachings, it's precisely because we're not open to these skeletons that we're walking around with not open to the fact that we're sinking ships, not fully cognizant, fully aware of the fact that we will die, that we, our lives end up being this, in some ways, a constant running uh, to avoid the reality of this. So you hear, may hear by the words that I'm using tonight of, of this passion uh, you could say eros, this longing, this, this, this vital force that we are that just wants to 
uh, that is, wants to feel ourselves alive and feel the beauty of life and connect and love and, and devour our life. That same force, uh, when, it is, when it is unleashed without wise view, with an unwise percept, with unwise uh, understanding, it, it tends to express itself at all the in in so many ways that lead us away from the truth, as one person said, make makes truth hard to live for, and believe and and makes us run from the very source of happiness and freedom that all of us are so passionately, uh, that we so passionately long for. So it is really, just as it was in the life of the Buddha, what really turned his mind, what was the mind-changing realization, was the reality of impermanence and, and death, was the reality of not just impermanence and death of one's own physical form, which is maybe the heart of the matter, but the, the birth and death of everything. Everything that has the nature to arise has the nature to pass away. And even the, in the teachings and the chanting that's done every day, this reminder, everything that has the nature to arise has the nature to pass away, to be in harmony with this truth brings happiness. And they even, we even chant it. We go, uh, all things are impermanent, they arise and they pass away. To be in harmony with this truth brings great happiness. And the word is sukha, brings relief, brings comfort when we are living in harmony with the truth. So you'll also hear in the, in the words that I'm using tonight, passion and eros, desire, is that the Buddha, Buddhism, for those of you who may not be so familiar, it's filled with the... It is filled with desire. The Buddha was filled with desire. But he made a very clear distinction that I think all of us has to clarify in our own lives. Did I just swallow a moth? (laughs) (laughs) Something strange just happened here. (laughs) Things are as they are. (laughs) The Buddha was filled with desire. And I said the desire is just uh, very central in the teachings. But it's important that we clarify what are those desires. And we have to clarify ourselves. It's not just adopting some view. It's not just becoming desireless, walking around tense and miserable because we're denying ourselves some kind of pleasure. It's to really see, to really inquire moment by moment, day by day, as where and what desires am I feeding? Am I feeding desires? Are those desires that I'm feeding, that I'm quenching moment to moment, are they increasing my sense of well-being and ease and contentment? Is it bringing me closer to the unconditional contentment that I am, that I never have to lift out of this moment to discover? Or is it leading me endlessly waiting for a future experience that I think will make me happier than I am, that, will, that, is, uh, that is actually increasing moment by moment, day by day, 
my sense of dissatisfaction and disease. What, what's happening? What's the result of where, what, where my passion is going? Because passion or desire or eros, attraction, it's really the nature of our existence. It's a sign that we're alive, that we feel desire. And if it wasn't for desire, there would be no awakening. But there, it's also true, if there was no desire, there'd be no delusion. So it really is, a, it, it, it provides the central koan of our life, is how do I use, and I think maybe this, the heart of spirituality in general, whether it's Buddha Dharma or any Dharma, the heart of it is, how do I use this amazing eros, this love, this passion, this longing, holy longing in the case of the Buddha, how do I use this energy? Do I use it to, to awaken or do I use it to, to keep myself uh, dull, confused, clouded, dissatisfied, anxious? Um, what, do, what do I do? Because if we really are honest with ourselves, our deepest, our deepest longing is to feel peace, to feel content. But somehow that word, contentment, it's almost like a dirty word in our culture. You almost, it's almost strange. It gets associated with boredom. It gets associated with, with uh, not doing enough. It gets associated with, with, uh, with lack of productivity. It gets associated with all of these things somehow. Yet that is the, the hidden longing in almost everything we do. That at the end of the rainbow, I can say, ah. At the end of the week, I can say, ah. At the end of the project, I can say, ah. It's all about ah. That's why we started with ah tonight in the instructions. But why we started with ah tonight in the instructions is because the teachings are continually reminding us to stop postponing ah. To stop looking for ah. Stop waiting one moment for ah. To, to realize, to awaken to the ah that you are the ah that is the nature of your mind right now, when you're, when you're aware, when you're just here, not looking forward, not looking back. All, at least the way I, would, the way I experience it, the way I see it, all desires are fulfilled right now. If I, of course, if I consult my memory of what, I'm, what I was lacking earlier in the day, what I thought would make me happier, I can say, oh yeah, that thing, that play, that person, that, and then I can start to build a whole identity or a seeker again, or I can just say, oh, there's the mind that thinks I need something to be happy, when in fact it's just the opposite. True happiness is, is the absence of uh, any particular need. And is there any need in a moment of being present? Isn't it true that all desires have, have been fulfilled? I've yet to find a person that can say in a moment of, of being mindful of anything lacking.
anything missing. It's the epitome of, of enough. Here's from David White. Enough. These few words are enough. If not these words, this breath. If not this breath, this sitting here. This opening to the life we have refused again and again until now. Until now. Enough. And Viktor Frankl. Between stimulus and response, there's a space. In that space lies our freedom and power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and freedom. So this is the creative. This, this, when you are here, when you are simply aware, you are at the, not just doing something with your, with that passion, with that arrows. You are, you are that creative source itself. You are the life that you are searching for. And so easy to miss. That's why it's called an, an open secret. So when I talk about clarifying where it is that, what it is, how that, that force, that creative force, that passion, that eros is expressing itself, that, that is really the, the, that's true spirituality is what you do with that. Our practice is to use, at least what I, what I think, our practice is to use everything that we've been doing with our mind as the reminder of our love of being right where we are. So if you see that you are sitting here and you are tonight, your energy system is waiting for it to be over. I'm sure there are a few of you, or many of you, that may feel that right now. This, we don't make wrong, we don't judge this, but we see that what we've been conditioning is we can actually feel, in real time, the effect of what we have practiced. And what we have often practiced in our life is that state of, of waiting, is that state of of toppling in that in that in that we've practiced that state of associating our freedom and happiness with getting to the end of things getting getting things done um, becoming somebody and we we don't just talk about this in the abstract we actually feel it as a kind of internal restlessness And the more that we, the more that, that I, I was just on a week, um, a week off where I did a lot of swimming and really slept, which was amazing. I didn't realize I hadn't been sleeping that much. Slept and swam and ate and had no schedule which is shocking in a way, since my, basically I'm scheduled through 2015 already, almost. Almost, I'm halfway through 2015. So I'm always on a schedule. But these little periperiods when I'm off, which at first, this was the first time since December, 
I just stepped out of all of that. But I noticed that the, that the pleasure of it, and this is how innocent it is for all of us, the pleasure of it, the ease that came with it, it produced pleasant feeling. It gave me a lot of, a lot, there was a, a delicious sense of, whoa, this is, this is wonderful. The, my senses were clearing and there was, and there was, uh, things were more beautiful and everything felt more, I just felt very pleasurable. But I noticed very quickly following the pleasure is I started to feel that sense of clinging because I wanted it to last. And I could feel because it had a time limit, eight days, that it was slipping away. And I just noticed that what was pleasurable immediately turned into suffering. And, and do you mind if I tell your story? An, such an innocent story that we all go through every day, and this is what, how our conditioning gets, gets um, developed. But uh, Mark, who's, who's sitting back there, he, he and his partner went to, were walking down the street, and they saw, and they were quite content and happy, and they saw a little, a little um, what do they call it, somebody, garage sale. And there were these three little porcelain bowls, green bowls, and a buck apiece, and he bought all three of them. Felt the pleasure of buying them, and then he took them home, and he broke one of them. And then immediately started suffering at its, at its loss. And how easily our mind gets associated with pleasure and clings to it and then suffers loss when it goes away. Just as in some ways as I was when I was uh, on my little holiday. And we don't often notice the, we don't know, we may just lament, oh, it's over, I wish it wasn't over. Don't really notice that we're, that, that we're just actually creating attention in our mind by holding on. And then what our mind usually does is it doesn't just hang out there and feel the pain of that letting go, of that loss of those days off or the bowl. Just feel the pain of it. Feel that, that yes, there is loss in, the, in, the, in this life. Their bowls break. As Ajahn Chah also said, it's wise if we can contemplate a lot and see the cup already broken. I think it was Ajahn Chah. It may have been Suzuki Roshi, but I'm not sure. But we don't hang out with it long enough. Because it's a little bit unpleasant, what our mind does is it, it doesn't like that space of loss and truth. Instead, it fills it with another desire. And pretty soon, there's almost no space left in our mind. Our mind is in a constant state of hunger and thirst, called, the Buddha called it tanha, craving. And unfortunately, this state of mind that is, is the, um, is, it is our vital energy, our wonderful creative energy, channeled into wanting something and associating our well-being with getting something or going somewhere, that, when our vital energy is channeled in that way, without understanding, is the source of suffering. 
It's the source of mental suffering. It's the source of, of confusion and ignorance and, uh, and just leaves us in a pretty much perpetual state of, as we say on meditation retreats, perpetual state of waiting for the bell to ring. Perpetual state of, of um, I'm not, things are not okay as I am, as they are. I'm not okay as I am. There's something wrong. Any of you ever get the feeling there's something wrong? There's something wrong with me? And all of this is just the elaborated version of ourselves as a, as a, a desire being instead of ourselves as the source of desire as the source of freedom itself. So the Buddha got wise. The Buddha said, saw, because he had that mind-turning reflection, I'm going to get sick, I'm going to get old, I'm going to die. It doesn't just happen to all the other 5 billion people, 6 billion, 7 billion now. It's going to happen to me. And for some reason, in his case, his, his passion was his love expressed itself as the love of truth. It expresses itself many ways, but his case, the love of truth was more important than the love of, uh, and the unreliability of what he saw at that moment was every other experience that he had clung to. That everything, when he reflected on it, he says, not only am I subject to this, these changing conditions, but everything that I hold near and dear is also subject to those conditions. There's something wrong with this picture. This is not going to bring me any kind of reliable happiness. And so that same love, that same eros turned inward. And as, as Meister Eckhart, Eckhart put it, the outward work will never be puny if the inward work is great. And his inward work became great as I invite all of you, all of us, to have our inner work be great, to turn not, certainly to enjoy life, to gladden your senses, to enjoy the world of sense pleasure, but feel, know that with every eight-day holiday, there is an end, and be in harmony with that end, to know every experience that you that, you, that gives you pleasure leaves a residue of loss. Every experience. So learn how to, as Blake said, learn how to kiss that joy as it flies so that you can, not just in poetry, that you can live in eternity sunrise. He who binds to himself a joy does the winged life destroy. But he who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity, sunrise. That's what we're practicing for. So that we actually, uh, instead of our life being all about feeding desire, that that desire, uh, that holy longing, leads us back to contentment. To that which we most long for. That which we don't have to leave here for. And so in the Buddha's case, he sat down, he started to, he, he 
relinquished his grasping at the things that before he thought would make him happy. You know, you've all heard the story. And he turned his attention to inward, turned his attention to how his mind was working. And he saw that it was, it was, it was dukkha. It was unsatisfying to be in a constant state of, of wanting things to be different. And he felt a kind of sympathy for, for how beings are just wandering endlessly, endlessly looking for a future that never arrives, endlessly postponing. And he, he looked and he saw that, that there was nothing that he could cling to that would give lasting satisfaction in this world of change. And interestingly enough, the more he saw that, the happier he got. The more he was in harmony with things the way they were, the more that vital energy, that, that eros, expressed itself as the joy of being it, as a, and the compassion, of, the compassion for, for, uh, for life and for those who are, are missing this open secret. But what finally really liberated his heart was, was as his mind relinquished its hold on, and it relinquished its grasping on, on the things and people and situations of this world, in a flash of insight, his mind, instead of once it's settled in to being here, instead of going out, it all of a sudden it it enfolded, it turned inward, it went, it turned the other direction. It was as though he looked back at his own face, and what he saw was his true face, his true nature, your true nature all of our true nature, was peace, freedom, unconditional openness, contentment. And when I say unconditional, that means you don't have to go anywhere to get it. It's home. You just have to stop straying away from it. And it's only your mind that thinks it's not here. And so what you do is you use your, you notice what your mind is doing. That's why we practice. We realize, we, we see that the nature of our mind is free, and we use that nature, our mind essence, which is both aware and always present. We use that mind essence to then notice all the kinds, all the ways that our mind says no. It's not here. It's not me. Buddha could get enlightened, but I can't. My neighbor's a good yogi, but I'm not. I've got too many habits. I've got too much addiction. I have too much unworthiness. Whatever it is, we use all of that. That's, that is our guru. That's our, that is our manure. So what are you saying to yourself that's, post, that's postponing your freedom. What are you saying you need? Where is your mind dwelling? See, my mind has been my mind has been dwelling on needing another vacation. I just got home. <laughs> just kidding. It's it's taken some adjustment because our minds are 
are prone to clinging. So it's not as though you let go one time. You have to keep letting go until, as Ajahn Sumedho says, it's a constant refrain in your mind and it just pops up, pops up on its own no matter where you go. Let go, let be, as is. And I, my own experience, even though I confess my delusions of grasping and, and enjoying the world of pleasures and all that and all, all the ways that I may grapple, I spend a lot more time content. And I also know that that's home. And I notice that rather than make me, I may be make, it may make me boring to some, but I find that it makes me function, as I like to say, 200% better. Because my mind is not so busy looking elsewhere. And it allows me to, to feel uh, the sustenance of relationships, of connection, of, uh, of how rich the present moment is, how different from past and future that are just mental, even how rich the mental life is when I'm noticing it in real time rather than lost in it. And I'm no different than anybody else. I have, we all have got a almost 60-year-old body that's getting creaky and, uh, uh, you know, that has a, it's a sinking ship. I, Ajahn Chah also uses this image because I've, um, I've been reading a little Ajahn Chah lately. He says, we're, all of us is like a, a big block of ice. <laughs> and we're slowly melting. <laughs> and that's really how it is. We're, we're you know, we're, we're all put together. <laughs> the lights are dimming. <laughs> the lights are dimming and, and they will go out. <laughs> so my, my urge, my desire for myself, my holy desire, my holy longing is to, uh, is to stay as I am, to be here, to be content. I don't say to, to become content, to do content. I say to be content. And, and I wish that for you. I wish that for all beings. Um, and in that process, I have some confidence, but a, real, a deep wish that, that our contentment will be dedicated naturally to the welfare and benefit of everyone, not just ourselves. So let's just sit quietly. We'll maybe dialogue about this next week. Maybe we'll do a little inventory on where our mind was inclining all week, where, what kinds of desires were we feeding but in the meantime, let's sit, not looking ahead, not looking back, settle back into the moment. Touching that divine place that is you, right where life touches you.
the mystery of presence, consciousness. And the mystery of that that holy longing, that movement that lives inside of you, lives inside of me. And And we end with a deep wish that all beings can channel that holy longing to the Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.